California camp, cruise, weddings, NYC, Shadow Lake, Snow, Shipwreck, RV, Esky, Hawaii, Burger Garden, Papers, Peter Pan, Barbie, it's a babysitter's club, super special. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing super special number one, Babysitters on Board. Oh man, this is this is a case of memories not matching up with <laughs> adult realities. I'm I'm interested to discuss this with you guys. Let's start with our one sentence summaries. Um, I'll give you guys mine. A series of barely connected short stories about a Caribbean vacation reveals little about the babysitter's inner lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very accurate. How about you, Emily? Mine says, Mr. Pike wins a cruise from work, so all the BSC goes on a cruise? Question mark? <laughs> yeah. A lot of shade in it as well. I did not enjoy this book. And... <laughs> So my one sentence summary is, is a borrowed something. It's you're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into the wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That signpost up ahead, your next stop, the ocean princess. <laughs> Very nicely mm -hmm. done. Very nicely done. I liked that summary more than the book. <laughs> Thank you, Rod Serling. Um, I mean, it's a little, the book's a little twilighty zone, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of the upside down Babysitter's Club world. Yeah. Okay, but you guys, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual, and I like health food. And I'm Annie Chikala, a freelance writer, a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, Check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And we really like it when people write us. So drop us a note at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Yay, emails. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, I would never say that. I hate email. Yeah, but it, this, this makes email a little bit better when we get it from listeners. It does. We've gotten some good ones so far. Keep them coming. Yeah. Uh, Emily, it seems like you have some feelings about this book, and I don't know if they're professional feelings or personal feelings or both. Why don't you start us off today? Well, first of all, I'm filled with regret. <laughs> regret for having read this book. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't know. It just really didn't do it for me. I didn't like the change in voices. I was like really confused about what all the subplots were and what they were contributing to the overall flow of the book. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, truly nothing. Uh, I would say, and we can get into some of this stuff later, I'm sure, but like, why Byron of all the triplets was something I was thinking about. Like, this is our intro to Mallory's voice also. I didn't like that. Like, I don't remember. The Mallory I read in this book is not the Mallory I remember reading. And I was like, I can't believe this is the first time we get her voice and this is what we're getting. That seemed to, a little off to me. I mean, there's a litany of things <laughs> I could go on, but... <laughs> I would say my biggest, the thing that sort of preoccupied me vis-a-vis -vis my, you know, academic lens was the cruise itself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I hate cruises mm -hmm. <laughs> on a personal level. That idea of traveling in that way is like sort of viscerally abhorrent to me. I don't mm -hmm. want to offend anyone cruisers, but also like they're objectively bad <laughs> for 
the ocean for local mm-hmm. economies and for all of these other reasons. And so like thinking about why Mr. Pike's company sent them on this cruise and like why Watson thought this was a good idea to do. I know lots of people go on cruises, but it was just like there to me, there's a huge, I don't know, gloss over mm-hmm. the cruise itself as like, it was just like a, a fun setting for hijinks to take place. Mm-hmm. And so many like subtle things were sort of infuriating that like, mm-hmm. I'm sure the kids aren't thinking about, but I'm just like, why did you have to have him go on a cruise? Mm-hmm. So could well, have, like take him camping or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> we'll get that later. We'll get that later. I mean, oh, it, right. It, it is a fun high setting for hijinks to take place. So. <sighs> <laughs> okay. So you've got your climate justice lens and your like local indigenous people's lens. And it sounds like there's another sociopolitical layer, like break it down for us. Tell us some of these problems. Well, cruises are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Emily, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to pull a psychology trick and ask you to be less judgmental and more descriptive. I would prefer not to. <laughs> but I'll try. <laughs> uh, That's just how really... most people react when I ask them to do that. Yeah, I just really have my Marianne hat on today, so I'm feeling full of judgments. Um, That's fair. No, what I mean by cruises are horrible is I mean they are horrible pollutants. So they are like painted on the exterior with toxic paint that like decimates decimates you know native sea life in local ports they they're they don't have proper ways of disposing of waste now even this is like a concern of consumer the 30 million consumers some subsection of the 30 million consumers that take cruises in the year 2019 are concerned with the sort of environmental impact of ships but you can bet in fucking 1988 they weren't you know, mm-hmm. talking about how they dispose of waste. They're probably just pumping all of it into the ocean. Um, there's been like a recent move to go plastic free again in the post 2015 years. So you can bet in 1988, you know, when Karen charges a Coke on Watson's room, <laughs> cause she knows how to do that from the hotels, fancy hotels they've stayed in as a six year old, whole other thing um, that like, <laughs> You can bet they give her a plastic straw wrapped in paper and like, who Mm -hmm. knows, and maybe even in a plastic cup, like whatever. Um, So when I say horrible, that wasn't a moral judgment casting on passengers. It was a qualitative assessment of the environmental impact of cruise ships (laughs) and the cruise industry on the ocean. Okay. (laughs) See, now I have much more information than I had when you first just said cruise ships are horrible. Yeah. And I'm less grumpy than I was five minutes ago. Blah, blah, blah. Who cares? (laughs) I get it. I should go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So they're, they're environmentally devastating. I yeah. was curious about, um, as I was reading it, when they stop in, where do they stop initially? In Jamaica and then on Treasure Key. Bahamas? Was, oh, yeah. Somewhere in the Bahamas. They don't say, oh, Nassau. They go to Nassau. Oh, yeah. Yes. Nassau. Yeah. So when they stop in Nassau and then they stop on, on Treasure Key, I was really curious about whether that's actually good for the local economies and like, whether, you know, my guess was probably not, um, but the impact on kind of native people in those areas versus this, you know, big cruise line coming in and what 
what we can expect there. This is not something that was discussed in the book, obviously. They were just like, great, here's my Bahamanian playground. But like, what what's going I, on with all yeah, of that stuff? Claudia's like, I can't afford the mother of pearl earrings that are probably cost four dollars. <laughs> right. <laughs> um look local craftsmanship. No, I mean I did a little bit of research, but it's kind of hard to find data that's not um produced and published by cruise alliance research hubs um there's like a little bit of it that happens like in the like croatian economic context but um the the difficulty to parse out like kind of what the economic impact of a ship is against like what it does what the presence of that form of economic exchange does to local economies is like requires different analytic tools, right? So, you know, cruise industries publish all this information that talks about like the $1.5 billion kind of economic boon of ships in general, right? Mm -hmm. That they produce, they um, provide, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs. They um, are responsible for a certain dollar impact of you know like economic exchange at port towns and all these kinds of things but like well and i'm sure there's oh i was just gonna say i'm sure there are north american tourists who wouldn't take their own like unaccompanied trip to some of these island locations that then they and their dollars get there because they're part of this like quote unquote like air quotes thoroughly used safe package, whereas they're not going to just like take a cheap flight and backpack around and like meet locals. And so their money only gets there through this method. And there's a lot of controversy over when we talk about economies that rely on tourism. So this is particularly true, like in the case of Puerto Rico, for example, there's a lot of, you know, kind of public discourse around getting people, encouraging people to continue to travel there again in the wake of several kind of devastating environmental disasters there because so much of their economy relies on tourism. And that's like partially technically true, but also tourism and the presence of tourism and the focus on pouring developmental dollars into tourism it is in part responsible for decimating other dimensions of local economies. And so there's this kind of inverted relationship between like a booming tourist economy and a, like receding other dimensions of, of the economy. And so there's like when places go in to invest in these as tourist destinations, there's always something insidious happening vis-a-vis like whatever other kinds of investments are going there and extracting and replacing other exist pre-existing local economies in different sectors. So mm. it's, it's always, a super complicated picture and to just pay attention on pure dollars generated from tourism doesn't really Mm -hmm. give a complete um, portrayal of like how actually tourism reconfigures local economies in ways that you can see, especially in, with the example of like what happened to cruises in the COVID crisis, that like now there's all these economies that had been reconfigured to rely on the the tourism the um, you know, profits generated from tourism, and then suddenly all of that's gone. And so mm-hmm. it's like actually leaves economies like quite precarious and subject to the whims of like whatever forces subject um, affect, you know, global travel patterns and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's all pretty insidious, in fact, like ways of cloaking other kinds of economic exploitation um, and like other patterns of capital extraction and and investment and disinvestment. So I don't know. 
you know, and it's interesting too. the guys, we can talk about this later, like the boys on the trip, Mm -hmm. the Pike triplets, Nikki and David Michael get really obsessed about hunting for treasure. And, you know, they think they're going to go to this like untouched uh, Caribbean Island and like, you know, they're, they're kids, but they've totally internalized some super problematic, like Western um, colonial ideas that like, they're going to be discovering something and there'll be like these animals they've never seen before. And like probably some people doing some things they've never seen before. And they're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, it's just a tourist Island. But like, it's not just a tourist Island. It's now a tourist Island Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of the displacement of all the, you know, things that they thought that they were getting. And like, you know, they're, they have this vision of the, these islands as like, you know, what explorers thought they were these like untouched kind of havens mm-hmm. of, you know, Barbary and whatever, which was like the, t- the thing that justified genocide. Yeah. I, this book is not about that, but like, this is what <laughs> I was thinking about when I was reading it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why you didn't like it very much, Emily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And cruises are interesting too because they're they take place in relationships to local economies, but they exist outside the formal framework of like a nation state economy. And so, you know, like the maritime law problem and like mm-hmm. the idea that like nobody really owns the oceans and therefore that's where we pollute and like throw all of our waste out. It's just like you don't think about cruises like that when you're thinking about about like a fun thing to do on vacation. Although to me personally, that doesn't sound fun, but I know to a lot of people it does. And so mm-hmm. it's like this weird, there's this weird, like, I don't even know what kind of gloss it is, but it's this like rainbow sunshine gloss over this thing. That's actually like pretty, has pretty devastating impacts on yeah. like a lot of different levels of socio-political levels and economic context so i don't know i the cruise setting didn't work for me yeah uh and i feel like we need to we need to take it out of this zone (laughs) i mean you remember liking this book a lot as a kid i mean yeah what is it there to like yeah. So what, uh, you know, and I think this is still sort of related to some of your expertise, Emily, because I'm interested in that. So I remember really loving it too. Tell, tell me about some of the things you loved in. Well, I think just the idea of going on vacation with all your best friends on like something as novel as a cruise ship that you've never been on before. It mm-hmm. has like four pools and, you know, all this stuff in it that you can do. And then in addition, getting to go to Disney World for like three days yeah. is like, I mean, that is fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like all of these amazing things wrapped into yeah. one. And I, I remember thinking that as a kid too. And it, it's interesting to me because like we did not go on cruises as kids and we, I didn't even go to Disneyland as a Californian. My parents were old and they were like, eh, we don't want to take you there. So I had to wait and go with the marching band in high school for the first time. Um, which, which made me like the poor pathetic kid. Cause like everyone went to Disneyland, like everybody's family scraped together the money it felt like, but it was interesting because I, and, and this is where the kind of capitalist piece comes in, Emily. Like, I don't remember reading this book and feeling left out. I don't remember feeling like I will never get to do this. Um, but I but I think about that because this is an expensive vacation. And I understand we're meant to believe that Mr. Pike's 
firm sent all 10 pikes and Marianne and Stacy for free, um, which feels a little know. bit. <laughs> feels a little unlikely to me. I have to suspend um, a lot of like reality to buy into the premise of this book. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why it's a super special, right? Like if we think of the name, I think uh, like a lot of the, like most of the super specials are not super grounded in reality in the same way. And that's why it's kind of Twilight zone right? Like you noted, and they're not grounded in the same reality that the regular adventures in Stony Brook are grounded in at all. Um, and so I think oh, they, they require. Are we like making the claim that this is a genre bending book? It's like, it's like Babysitter's Club magical realism or like what? <laughs> I, I mean, kind of. Yeah, I think kind of. Um, because I just think that because Anna Martin doesn't pull as much totally unbelievable stuff in the regular series books. Mm -hmm. Like there's not been anything that's happened so far. And I really don't remember a lot that's, that happens later on that is completely outside of the realm of possibility. Like there's a lot of coincidences. My younger daughter, June, the other day said, how come everybody that moves to Stony Brook likes to babysit? <laughs> Which I thought was a pretty astute observation all the new kids end up like joining the club but um well we're not getting any of the melissas <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no yeah the, the, the those are those are not featured they just join the agency and you know yeah but um i i i don't think there's things that are super unbelievable but the super specials in general have pretty unbelievable premises and like really unique crazy mm -hmm. things happen to them um so i i'm not having a problem suspending that disbelief but i what struck me about the way it was written in terms of kids is that some parts of it many parts of it really felt like an episode of mr rogers to me hear me out <laughs> what i mean is they were explaining very plainly like what it's like to be on a cruise ship in the same way that like you would see an old episode of Mr. Rogers and it's like, let's go to the shoe repair shop. And here's my friend, Mr. Johnson, who repairs the shoes. And then you watch him repair the shoes and you like learn about the world. And it like helps kids understand all the different things that are happening around them. And this felt like a tutorial to me in like a cruise and a Disney vacation um, and was written with that kind of tone so that I, like, as a kid, I think you could feel like you're there. But I never felt like, oh, I'm never going to get to go on this. It was just like, yes, you know, this is the best vacation ever. So it's interesting to me. And I'm, I'm curious if, like, kids from other socioeconomic backgrounds and more, I mean, my family couldn't have afforded this and they wouldn't have wanted to. Um, but I didn't feel left out. And I'm wondering, like, if there was a threshold for kids where it was like, well, clearly I would never go on this. So this kind of sucks. Like, and if maybe that's just more personality based, I don't know. I mean, only like 15% of Americans go on cruises. Right. I'm sure that was lower in 1988. Yeah. So then it's just like a dream for everybody. And that's the joy of fiction. It was a nightmare for me personally. <laughs> I don't, I don't even remember as a kid thinking that like a cruise sounded like a fun vacation. You're like stuck on a boat with all these people. There, there's like some pathological liars, some stalkers, <laughs> like a cranky old man. Like you have to babysit the whole time. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just. I mean, I think what's interesting with what Esme said is like, you didn't think like, this is something I'm never going to do, but it is something that as 
a kid expanded your your like worldview in this weird way like which I think is pro- was probably the most appealing thing to me was like oh there's this thing called cruises and people go on them and they seem mm-hmm. fun um which is like you know that's like what travel is in general but it's a very totally. like kind of lame aspirational view of traveling is to go on a cruise and go to Disneyland but for kids, you know, right. I think that's something that you can, it's like within the realm of possibility. So it makes it more exciting. <laughs> I'm sure that it's also a gateway for a lot of people, right? Like, um, you know, I can imagine a Dawn or somebody, uh, you know, if she was paying attention to what happened in port, if she wasn't transfixed with this Parker dude, um, I can imagine her, you know, becoming really interested in like the the native handicrafts that are for sale on the island and wanting to take more of a trip that is more getting to know people in that area and, you know, not a packaged vacation mm-hmm. when she's older. I was thinking, yeah, it's a gateway drug to more environmentally devastating forms of problematic tourism. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so I'm really interested in that because there's a big dialectic there, right? Because obviously, you know, we know plane flights are horrible and there's lo- there's lots of difficulties with, you know, uh, Greta Thunberg has highlighted for all of us why most travel is problematic. But I do think that there's a humanitarian um, aspect to travel of seeing other places and understanding what the world is really like and knowing what different kinds of poverty actually looks like and the effects of colonialization and all of those kinds of things that people don't get when they don't travel. And I'm just interested to see, you know, those are, those are both worthy views and kind of how do we balance those and certainly like not on a a cruise. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So that's what I would argue. I would say doing a cruise is worse than you know, trying to go and, you know, staying in some locals bed and breakfast that is their small thing and like trying to learn some things about the local community and, you know, understand the world better. I think there's a scale of problematic. Yeah, sure. But you could see like, you know, one of the triplets doing this cruise and then being like, I'm going to join the Peace Corps, which we know has we now know has like a lot of problematic white savior dimensions to it. And is like thought of as this kind of in the vein of what you're saying, but really serves a lot of, you know, imperial kind of American imperial ends. And so it's like where they're working on. I I mean, I feel like that's been, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's also less so now than it was in the eighties. Maybe we won't get into that. All right. Um, Yeah. I mean, Yes. To me, like the cruise, I jokingly, you said it was a gateway. So I was like, yes, a gateway drug. Yeah. Um, but I think. Oh, thank, thank you for explaining that joke to me. <laughs> well, I was explaining it to the audience. So I'm kidding. <laughs> oh. I was explaining it to you. I trust the audience. <laughs> um, no, but I take your point, right? That like there, this might open them up, right? If Dawn hadn't been so lovesick, she might have spent more time thinking about local art artistry and being like oh wouldn't it be cool to have visited this island in a different context not just like seeing the port from the cruise ship or whatever mm-hmm. um i think that's probably right mm-hmm. and i don't like the cruise yeah okay, <laughs> in so case yeah. Uh, and and were you confused about emily's opinion about the cruise <laughs> i thought maybe she liked it though yeah <laughs> okay no <laughs> 
So um, we got a great listener email, um, not necessarily about this book, but it pertains um, to things related to this book from MC, which is a little confusing, Emily, because you're also MC, but it's a different MC. I didn't write uh, that email, <laughs> just to clarify. Okay. Um, and they did a lot of research on Karen. Um, so basically they open with saying, I remember having a lot of Karen books when I was about seven and nine years old. And I remember not liking Karen at all. But when I watched the Netflix series, I really enjoyed her character. Shout out to Sophie Reed Cancer. She did a great job. So I decided to start rereading some of the books in the Karen series. So this is the Babysitter's Little Sister books, which I believe none of us read. Is that I correct? Correct. Yeah. So we were a little old, so we didn't we didn't go that direction. Um, I'm honestly baffled that we're meant to like her and how her behavior is just kind of enabled by the adults in her life and Christy. And they go on to give us a lot of different examples of heinous Karen behavior, um, some of which are, are, are quite funny. But we've already seen some examples of some pretty heinous Karen behavior in the books we've read so far. So in terms of her scaring all the other kids at the playground about the aliens in Christie's Big Day. And Emily, I know you're quite defensive of Morbid of Destiny and Karen's claims and accusations to her. But I found her really interesting in this book. Um, do, you, do you guys want to recap a few of the things that she did? We have We actually get chapters from Karen's perspective. I think this is before the Little Sister books came out. I think this is kind of the dawn of listening to Karen's voice. Well, first, she's supposed to be retrieving something quickly from the cabin while Christy's watching her at the pool. And she gets a manicure from the the beauty salon that's on the ship. And she charges Mm -hmm. into the cabin. From Lynette. Her name is Lynette. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so she like disappears for a while. She gets a manicure and she also drinks a Coke. At the cafe. Oh, right. She also stops and gets a Coke. Yeah. She did that. And then also at Disney World, when they were having their, like, character breakfast, she saw saw a kid. It was their birthday. And she saw they got a lot of attention. All the characters were singing happy birthday to them. And then afterwards, she's like, it's my birthday, too. Like, Mm -hmm. Karen's a, I don't know, man. Is it any coincidence (laughs) that her name is Karen? Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, and there's not really consequences for any of these things. Um, ha- yeah. You know, when first of all, I mean, let's be honest. Christy should not have let a six-year-old go to a different level of a cruise ship by herself um, while she's watching a four-year-old at the pool. Like, that's not a that's not a great idea. Well, judgment judgment on Christy Thomas's behalf. Um, but how long do you think she was gone to get a manicure and drink a Coke? She didn't get the Coke to go. She, like, sat at the cafe and drank the Coke. Well, I feel like a manicure is at least, I would say the whole process is about a half an hour. Mm-hmm. I was going to say 45 yeah. minutes. 30 to 45. Yeah. Um, depending on the manicurist. And then, you know, getting a Coke and she sat down. And I think when she sat down in the cafe, she was like recounting her time at an outdoor cafe, like in New York or something, <laughs> eating clams. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember I the clams, but no, I'll give she it to orders. You. No, no, she orders like lobster or something, but doesn't eat it. Remember, Watson says, "Daddy said we could get whatever we want," and I ordered something obscene. Of course, I didn't eat it. Like what? <laughs> yeah, so she drinks a Coke. First of all, six-year-old drinking like a whole Coke probably isn't that great either. But you know, 
Yeah, but it's 1988. You, you people were drinking soda all the time. I, my parents like, were not drinking soda. No, but everyone was drinking soda because I remember being at like every birthday party and having to like ask the mom, could I have some water, please? Because the bubbles are too spicy for me. There's <laughs> like, another personality trait. <laughs> I didn't like soda. It was too sweet and too spicy. So um, I felt like it was everywhere as a child. I felt like you could not get water. True. So... Like, coffee, that was my experience. I was a thirsty kid. The cafe was another 15 to 20 minutes at least. So she was definitely gone for over an hour, I would say. Yeah, with the travel time between the decks, I would assume an hour and, and a half. Really. So basically, when M wrote to us, they were like, how are we supposed to met to how are we supposed to like Karen? And you know, I don't think that she says this. excuse me, they, I don't know their pronouns. I don't think that they say this directly, but they're basically asking, is Karen a psychopath? Oh, here's their question. Is Karen spoiled and overindulged? Is she oppositionally defiant? Or am I reading too much into these things? Curious to know your thoughts and love your work. So thank you so much for the email. Um, And I'll ask you guys, what do you think? What do you think the origin of this, these behaviors are? Well, she comes across as being very entitled, I guess. And every and everything she does, um, and I think it's supposed to come off as like she's, you know, quirky. She's a quirky kid, and it's supposed to come off as being like cute, kind of. But I think after reading MC's email, I'm like, oh man, like is like Watson raising this really entitled child, you know? And they're going to grow up to be a total piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because they. There's moments where she seems very inquisitive and she's like really paying attention to things around her. And she seems to have a very creative imagination. But I think that against the backdrop of like a certain socioeconomic class that's attached to a bunch of different social privileges, like gives lends her an entitlement that she might not have necessarily developed if she wasn't so like obsessed with what everyone else around her is doing, you know, mm-hmm. like I think mm-hmm. to me, it seems like she has a kind of natural, like attention to things that combined with the like cultural context of being really wealthy, like leads her to do things that seem that or leads her to behaviors that seem a little bit strange, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think this is another situation where developmental context is super important, right? And so these same behaviors in a 13 or 14 year old would be super problematic, yeah. right? Like, oh, oh, it's my birthday too. You know, that's why we're um, led to dislike Alexandra Carmody, Marianne's mysterious, rich liar friend, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, But Karen is only six, right? So she's a first grader. I guess she's a second grader because she skips a grade. So she's precocious, but she's six years old. And so, you know, it left me thinking about moral development and kind of how we learn about what's right and wrong. And, and there's a bunch of, you know, a lot of the work in developmental psych and moral development is pretty old at this point. So Kohlberg was um, one of the first, you know, following Piaget kind of looked at different stages of moral development. And then that stuff was later really criticized by Carol Gilligan, who we've talked about before as being really androcentric and, and focused on the right way for like men's moral development to, Uh, move along as opposed to like a relational focus of women, but they don't really differ at this young of an age level. And so basically 
my argument would be, and, and there's other, Elliot Turiel, who's a um, professor at Berkeley um, in the education department, has also looked at moral development. And it, it would be more that she's just not there yet. Like she's seeing Karen's paying attention to what's in front of her, right? And um, what's happening in that moment and what she wants in that moment. And so the the consequences of those things. And to be fair, the, the consequences in both of these examples from this book are really emotional consequences. It's not like anyone was actually in danger. Um, You know, it was worrying Christy and then like embarrassing Elizabeth and Watson and irritated David Michael that she lied that she's seven and David Michael's really seven. Um, But she's not doing anything dangerous, but she is, you know, just kind of doing what suits her in the moment and thinking through kind of the emotional consequences on other people of abstract actions that seem really appealing to you in the moment is not a thing that most six-year-olds are really great at doing, Um, which is why we generally don't let them go by themselves on a giant cruise ship. (laughs) So, um, but I think that you can see a little bit of that permissiveness and that overindulgence that M pointed out in terms of, you know, they're not really being a consequence for Christy. They just like stay at the pool and go swimming. And she has, Christy takes a picture of the manicure and, you know, same with Watson, you know, saying I have half a mind to take you out of this room right now. But then I'm sure he was also thinking about sunk costs. Like we paid extra to have the character breakfast on this paddle boat and let's just do this thing. He's also like, it wouldn't look good if everyone here thinks it's your birthday and mm-hmm. I take you out. So like the the he's worried about backlash from the perceived what people perceive him as doing when he's actually yeah. responding to a behavior that is problematic. And so there's yeah. this like weird way that that like social norms circumscribe his ability to punit to like hold her right. accountable for that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you look at it in this frame of moral development that a lot of people may have learned about in their like intro to developmental psychology class, you know, level one is lots of these are just like terms that came from the late 50s, early 60s is like pre-conventional moral development. And first your, your question is, how can I avoid punishment? And then your questions after it are like, what's in it for me? There's sort of a self-interest orientation. And most kids are there until like seven or eight Um, And you can, you know, you can help people's moral development a little bit by talking about these things earlier. Um, But, you know, kids are not focused as much on like social norms and like being a good boy or a good girl, that kind of thing until a little bit later, until like third, fourth grade. So I think, you know, I'm not I'm not going to label her as oppositional defiant or any of those kinds of things yet. But um, we may see that in the future. Well, we won't because she'll always be six. So, wait, how many uh, potential diagnoses are we tracking now? We're tracking Claudia's ADHD, uh, Marianne's shyness versus social anxiety, and mm-hmm. what's what would be the thing that we're tracking here? Like sociopathy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can't we can't label that in a six year old. So I think we're just looking at at, at brattiness or oppositional defiant. And I think we have no evidence for that. Oppositional defiant disorder is also like a garbage diagnosis. We can I'm sure we'll have a kid that we can talk about that another time, but it's not. Diagnoses are useful when they lead to treatment and um I don't think we're carving nature at its joints with oppositional defiant disorder. It's got some it's got some problems. Rock on. Yeah, before we move on to um Anne's just like litany of 
random pop culture questions <laughs> that came up during this book. I really did not like either of the romance stories. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts. And in contrast, I, you know, I know we talked in Logan Likes Marianne about some of the problems that Melissa Walker in particular noted in their development, but that seemed much more organic and much more real to me than either Claudia's relationship with Timothy, who she thinks isn't her secret admirer and who is very obviously her secret admirer. He was also a member of the Liar family. Um, and Don's relationship with complainy bratty Parker. Um, so I, and I don't know if that's an artifact of just only getting, you know, three Claudia chapters and three Dawn chapters in the book. So there's not time to develop it or if they were just clunky and not very um, believable. What, what did you guys think? Well, I think that, I mean, it's, they don't have that much time to develop these relationships just because of the book, the format of the book. But I did find it weird that like Parker and Timothy were like, it's like there's no reason for Don or Claudia to like them. They give like Sarah, like we we don't like at first like uh, Parker's not likable at all because he doesn't like he calls his stepbrothers like bratty and like all kids are bratty and all kids suck and like Don's like this child loving career babysitter, um, and but she's still like oh but like I think I'm in love and stuff and then like. Uh, Timothy with Claudia who is her secret admirer there's also like zero reason for Claudia to like him like she's like oh you know he's like my height he's a good height for me and he has brown hair that kind of is curly great yeah let's let's be a couple you know and it just makes me feel like it's this like weird like Fonzie like thing where it's just like they snap their fingers. It's like, hey, and it's like a girl just like appears and they they just like fall over themselves for this guy. Yeah, I could see Don being like a hot guy stuck on a ship, like gonna gonna ogle. But the second he opens his mouth and he's like that, I feel like she'd be like, like, sure, something fun to pass the time, but not as invested in it. Yeah, they both got really invested. And I wouldn't blame them as like 13 year old budding girls to be, you know, to do the 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 boy crazy thing a little bit and just, or be, just like, be like, I'm down to flirt, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. But that they both upgrade it to like, love. love. <laughs> yeah, I didn't buy it. Yeah. Also, Dawn lets Parker off the hook really easily. You know, she's like doesn't say anything to him she's makes an attempt to sort of lead by example but like doesn't hold him accountable for anything and then her narration of the thing is like oh yeah he seems seems like he actually enjoys him after all even though he says he doesn't and he calls all kids brats and i'm just gonna let that sub in for like any kind of i don't know responsibility for his bullshit parker seemed really lame i yeah I guess I'm trying to think back on like how girls make decisions when they're 13 and have a crush on a boy. Um, Okay. But here's my thing. I feel like if I was done at 13 and I loved babysitting, I loved kids and some dude who was hot was like, kids are stupid that I would have been like, no, let's argue about this forever. And like, this is part of how we're going to flirt. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. I buy that. And I buy Bond's that. just like, mm, I'm just going to well, not say anything. That's why I feel like yeah. this book was kind of like the Twilight Zone because you remember like Dawn with uh, Dawn and Impossible 3, like how she was so kind of judgmental about the mom, right? And like now in this book, it's like she has no judgment over over this guy's opinion about kids. It just seems like really out of character for Don, who is usually a very, like, you know, she seems pretty grounded in her values. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even just the getting totally spacey mm-hmm. thing feels a little out of character. Like, let's forget about the fact that Parker, you know, and I can give Parker a bit of a pass. Like, he's having a hard time dealing with his blended family. Like, most kids do not have this easy pat, like, slide into that that Christy has had. Right. And so I think it is a big deal when your parents get remarried and suddenly you have two little stepbrothers. So I, you know, I don't think he has the vocabulary to like say, this is hard for me. I'm, (laughs) I'm having a lot of feelings I don't understand. You know, it's a lot easier to be like the boys are bratty. So I, you know, I can give him a little bit of a pass. I don't know that that's necessarily like a central value of his, like that's how he's expressing his adjustment to this situation. But Don just like laying down about everything, though, in general, or like not noticing the triplets when they pass her on Treasure Key and like all of those kinds of things. I'm like, where did you go, Don? Don't lose yourself, There's my also friend. There's other things about Parker. Like, I feel like when they first, they like, they're like kind of flirting on the ship and then they go to that snorkeling thing. And he's like, mm-hmm. like, well, let's go do something together. And they like walk off, but they like, don't know each other's names yet. <laughs> and Don was like, oh, yeah. by the way, I'm Don. And he's like, oh, I didn't introduce myself. I'm like, what? That's like very strange to me. And also he wore loafers to go to Disney World, which is just like <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, that seems really, I mean, is that just like well, a... hold on. How many, <laughs> how many young men from Connecticut do you guys know? <laughs> That's what I was just going to ask. Yeah. I was just going to say, is that a Connecticut thing? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Falling <laughs> apart boat shoes uh, you wear everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I mean, his outfit is like, ugh. Yeah. I had like Connecticut PTSD from reading about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's not... A, you're a not joke trying to minimize. Taste. Yeah. yeah, you're not trying to minimize actual PTSD. I understand. I am not. No, I am trying um, to emphasize <laughs> how, how bad on and bad that outfit is. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think those boys were problematic. That's all. And I and well and and Timothy was like stalking Claudia in this very disturbing way. Like, I don't know why she would like, I get the interest in like one or two little secret admirer gestures, but once it's happening all day, every day, it's like, ew, get the, like introduce yourself or get the hell yeah. away. I think the fact that he runs off all the time is like the creepy part, you know? Yeah. Which brings me to another question just about all these relationships, these new relationships in the book. First of all, all mm-hmm. these best friends, go on this vacation together, but they like spend no time together, (laughs) which is like, I was like, no one's hanging out with each other at all. So no, no, they have scheduled meetings every day. (laughs) You're right. I'm sorry. (laughs) So, okay. Christy makes friends with Rudy 
right? Who's an older widowed man. Um, Stacy makes <laughs> friends with this um, young boy. He's seven, I believe. His name is Mark. Who's and he's in a wheelchair <laughs> due to a heart condition. Um, Don <laughs> has Parker. Claudia has Timothy. Uh, and then Marianne has this weird non friendship friendship with Alexandra Carmody. Is that correct? Uh, mm-hmm. So then I was like, okay. I, I mean, it's made up. Yeah, it's made up. <laughs> but so I, I. You can think you can pronounce it how Carmody. you want. So what I think is interesting is, you know, Anna Martin obviously gave them, this is one point of the book, is that they all develop these relationships these like vacation short-term relationships outside of their friendship Mm -hmm. and how, you know, she wrote them to, it seems like to develop the characters in a certain way. So it's, it's like Christy Mm. related to Rudy because he had lost his wife and Christy's dad had left. Stacy relates to Mark because she also Mm -hmm. has this illness, diabetes, and that's how she kind of relates to him. Mm-hmm. And then Don and Claudia, I don't really know. I feel like Don just establishes that she <laughs> likes boys because she hasn't really liked any boys before in the books and she hasn't gone there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Claudia, I feel like, is weird because she doesn't really do much on this vacation. She kind of is a loner. She's by herself a lot. Like, remember when she's like eating a butterscotch sundae by herself? Like, what? Yeah. Why are you on vacation by yourself with all your best friends around? Well, she and Christy go snorkeling together, right? When Don leaves true. them. And, like, she, I, I think, like, Christy, Claudia, and Don are hanging out together mm-hmm. some, um, other than Christy and Don having the, the dumbest fight right. ever. We'll get but into like, that too. There's lots of references to the odd couple yes. in this book. And then, <laughs> and in the BSC in general. And then Marianne fills this kinship with Alexandra because. Even though she lies, Alexandra says her parents were killed. And then Marianne relates that back to her, the loss of her mom. Um, So I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, so there, you know, there's some point to these relationships to develop these, these main characters. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there's other shit, like this weird, the ongoing fight between Christy and Don, which is like, I decided Christy's just being a total B in this, in this book. Yeah. So they're in a tiny cabin together with the the which is also a fun part of like I can imagine being in a cabin with the two of you on a cruise um with Emily complaining about it the whole time but you and I would have fun and this actually is this is a, this is the exact cabin that they have it's Claudia and Christy and Don <laughs> in a cabin together. So Anne would have to use the extra bunk bed to put all of her clothes that she brought. Um and, and you overpack? I don't think I Overpack. Oh, that's a yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's all I needed to know. Yeah, that. Hi. Then you're like, yes, yes, the answer is yes. The difference being that that I am not a, a slob in the way that Christy is a slob. I think um, I would probably be the slob. That's just not actually, actually true. I was like, going to say yeah. you would be the slob <laughs> with all your extra yeah. stuff. But Christy does like purposely goad Dawn by like dropping garbage on the floor and driving her nuts. But then Dawn Powell. also, huh? Yeah. But Dawn admits later that she was being extra clean to drive Christy mm-hmm. nuts. Yeah. What a monster. <laughs> <laughs> what, what really like when Dawn picks up the two empty wrappers of M&Ms and throws them so hard into the wastebasket that they almost come back out. 
I was like physically impossible. I was like, whoa, is Dawn just like really strong? Is she like what is because you're gonna have to throw those really hard. <laughs> um, yeah. A couple other things I thought about were um, just like the whole Disneyland versus Disney World debate. So let's just clear this mm-hmm. up. Disneyland is better. Yeah, we're Californians, so I feel like I have I've never had, been to Disney World. Neither I have. have I. So, and we're yeah. looking at you as our representation. So, my husband, Micah, is from Florida. And he's like, well, Disney, this is what, this is the um, typical Floridian response to this argument. Well, Disney, Disney World's bigger. And I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. Such a Floridian response, right? <laughs> it's bigger, so it's better. <laughs> no. <laughs> Isn't that te- the motto of Texas? <laughs> <laughs> um, but Disneyland is better. It's the only Disney park that was actually like Walt's vision. So, therefore, like, he didn't really have much to do with the vision. Like, he wanted Epcot to be a thing, but he was he had already died before it was actually executed. So, he didn't have a lot of say in the actual, mm-hmm. like, uh, the specificity of planning of Disney World. Um, Di- Space Mountain in Disney World is supposed to be, like, a little bit more, um, like faster and have more like turns mm-hmm. vomit inducing um yeah. which also by the way did you notice that all the babysitters were kind of weak when it came to roller coasters they're they were like walking around <laughs> disney world like they were like old old ladies they're like oh i can't go on big thunder before after we eat. we gotta wait or like <laughs> that was that was Anna Martin because I she took a trip to do research for this, and I think that was just Anna Martin's reaction, and she forgot that her like <laughs> vestibular system is older than thirteen year olds. Right, but I I thought that was funny. Um, it was funny, and then also uh, it, just because this is the first book where we see this is first super special, so we see all the like the different points of view in every chapter. It just made me think about whose handwriting I like best. <laughs> Oh, because it's all yeah, in one book. And, one like, it's just it's just their names, though. We don't get as much as we get no, in the regular don't. books. But I decided I like Christie's handwriting the best. Hmm. Fair enough. How come? I don't know. Just like the way it looks. I would yeah. say Marion is my least favorite. Yeah, right. Until we get to Jesse's unreadable fancy scrawl, but we haven't oh, seen yeah. that yet. I mean, also, do you want to talk about, about Mallory's, like, spying? Wait, whose handwriting is m- most is closest to each of ours? Um, mm. I think Christie's cursive is close to mine, but I have more like a Don Stacy combination naturally. I think. Yeah. I, I think I actually think I have Claudia's because. <laughs> yeah, you do. I think hers is the you messiest. Do. You have Claudia minus the misspellings, but yeah, I, I'm like a Don Stacy combo when I normally write, but my cursive is very Christie-ish. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think I'm also a bit of a Don Stacy combo, but heavier on the Don. Our handwriting is a little similar. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. There it are is. certain vowels we do in different styles, but mm-hmm. like as a a pattern of mm-hmm. sh- they have similar mm-hmm. patterns. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think mm-hmm. about the Marianne Alexandra fight? Completely unnecessary to the plot of the book. Well, uh, there's nothing necessary to the plot of the book. There's not really the plot is go to Florida and the Bahamas and come back home and come up with a present. Like that's the <sighs> plot. I, guess. <laughs> I, you know, I look, we know Marianne's attracted to glamour, mm-hmm. right? That's already been established. And 
she is the only person in her world who has lost a parent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to death, right? Yes, Chrissy's dad is gone, but he's alive in the world. So it makes sense to me that she would like over focus on that one thread and try to like make a relationship with Alexandra based on that. Yeah, but it's just like, yeah, so. uh, Marianne made someone cry. She made her cry. Then also this Alexandra girl starts like following around Marianne all over Disney World, which I thought was very like, and the fact that Alexandra wants so badly for Marianne to forgive her is what I find interesting because. Yeah, there are mistakes there. Yeah. If she's just like a sociopath with famous parents, then why does she care that much if she hurt Marianne? Doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, the, I think her behavior is weirder mm-hmm. and doesn't make and and I'm not I'm like that's not that's not psychology. Mm-hmm. I don't know what her deal is. I'm not I'm not I don't want to yeah. speculate. <laughs> and then the last thing I want to speculate on is so they keep on mentioning spider from the insects. So like mm-hmm. what do we think the other members of the band are called? <laughs> okay, well hold on. First we have to uh, what's the genre? There's mention of guitar. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's pop punk. Pop like punk? Main, yeah. Like mainstream. But who would that be in 1988? Well, no, regardless of who it would be in reality, like how oh, yeah. many members of the band would there be, like, and what instruments would there be? And then what would the names be? Well, I think it's... Yeah. Right, if it's pop punk, there's a... Spider's the guitarist, right? There's a drummer. Well, I'm not asking... I wasn't asking who it would be. I meant, like, there wasn't a lot of pop punk in 1988. That's right. what I meant. I see. Like, I see. so it's probably unlikely, because I don't think they would be into... Like, there was actual punk, but I don't think, like, Mallory at 11 from Stony Brook, Connecticut would be into, like, actual punk you don't in know. 1988. I mean, I honestly, out of all the, like... <laughs> members of the BSC, I feel like Mallory would be the one to get into like some weird like crust punk anarchist type of okay. <laughs> yeah. also spiders are redheads so she's like yes representation <laughs> I feel like Mallory's hair is only occasionally described as red but well, oh, we I can thought talk it was <laughs> really? I thought okay, that was like canon it's on and off it's on the covers it's always red but sometimes hmm. it's not described that well, way well I feel like the insects are definitely like a rock band Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think like two guitars, bass and drums, may- maybe a keyboard because it's 1988. Right. So do you think there are also the other members' names are insects? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like one of them's a centipede. Hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, is it like James and the Giant Peach? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ladybug. <laughs> yeah. They have a woman bassist. She's was just going to say it's a woman bassist and her name is Ladybug. Uh-huh. Yes. Who's the drummer? Hmm. Uh, like centipede's got to be the drummer, right? Because of yeah. all the legs. <laughs> all the, yeah. I like, wait, yeah. I like Emma's logic there. <laughs> centipede has to be the drummer <laughs> because of all the legs. <laughs> yeah, because then he could pull out some really good riffs. He could have like or six it could sticks. Be, centipede sticks. could be the keyboardist because he could like use all his. Oh, oh. and Spider could be the right. drummer. But is he get, is he specifically the guitarist? Does she say that? I thought she says he's the guitarist, but I could be wrong. Yeah. <sighs> okay, we got to dive back into the text, you guys. This is important. I thought there was also an ant. <laughs> ant. Ant. Yeah. Well, there's something like mm. Adam Ant. Yeah. But yeah, and then like Claudia wanted the her secret admirer to yes. be Spider, right? Mm-hmm. But she's thirteen and. 
Why did I almost faint? Because the guy was Spider from the Insects, my favorite group. Group again. Mm -hmm. I was sure of it. He's famous for that missing tooth. He lost it during a show when he hit himself in the mouth with his own electric guitar. Right. So they, Anna Martin just uses group into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's the word? Indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is clearly a band with an electric guitar player. Right. Named Spider. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Spider, so Centipede, Ladybug, and Ant. Cockroach? I feel like Ant is it. <laughs> what about Flea? Was Flea in this band first? Oh, shit. You're right. <laughs> I think Red Hot Chili Peppers were around in 1988. Not on the East Coast. <laughs> wait, let me. Is it Flea? Check it out. Red Hot. Oh, my God. Wait. We solved it. Okay. Let me look at their discography. Maybe this was like the hip new band at the time. Okay. So, years active, 1983 to present. 1988. So they were a band okay. in 1988, but they. How old was Flea? He wasn't the guitarist, uh, though. No, he's no. a bassist. No, don't try to kick Ladybug yeah. out of the band. She was yeah, born in 1962. <laughs> She's my favorite. 1962. <laughs> You're a Ladybug fan. <laughs> yeah. So he would have been 26. Yeah. I can math. I think that works. <laughs> yeah. I think that works too. Wow. Amazing stuff, guys. I know. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> did Claudia eat candy in this book? She did eat candy. They ate M&M's. Well, also, I think I really related to the mini bar thing. Because it's like, you know when you're a kid and you see that cabinet or fridge full of candy yeah. and like chips and soda, you're like, you, you like can't get into it. It's so frustrating. I also thought this was a case of Watson being penny wise and pound foolish. I'm like, you just spent how much money, which we could talk about, on this whole cruise for like your whole giant blended family plus these two extra 13 year olds. How come none of the other kids get to bring friends? Mm -hmm. Just Christy. Um, and and you're like, those are probably four dollars. Yeah. Oh, wait, <laughs> like, we're Simon. What's up with Watson. Sam and Charlie? They were there. They, they just were there. got no. They got no. Yeah, they're just out making out. I know. I would have liked a Sam or Charlie chapter. I would Same. have been interested to hear from their point of view. Wait, so how much would it have cost Watson in $2020? So we looked into this a little bit, right? And your brother had taken a cruise. Yes, my brother with his two kids took a similar cruise. It was like a sort of Bahamas cruise um, and then a Disney World stay. And for a family of four, he said it was between... It was close to $12,000. So what we did is we divided that up to get the price for one person. And then um, $1 in 1988 is $2.19 today. And we then multiplied it by the, how many people are on this trip? Like 18? No way. 21. What, whatever it is. I looked well, it up. I counted all the family members. Paying for? Oh, I looked at everybody because I'm st I'm just curious the whole cost. Oh, the whole cost. Some okay. of it looking at Mr. Pike's um, company. So it would have been twenty six thousand seven hundred and twelve dollars in nineteen eighty eight, or almost sixty thousand dollars today. Five fifty eight thousand five hundred dollars. Crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Sick. And I feel like what did a house in like small town Connecticut cost in nineteen eighty eight? Probably not that much more than twenty six thousand dollars. I don't know. I mean, right now, yeah. like... Right, but, like, I mean, you could get a house in Sacramento in the 80s for, like... Oh, yeah. 
no, less than 100. Is, like, yeah, I mean, moved to Sacramento, I think, in like 1976 or 70. It was like before I was born. Their house cost like yeah. $30,000. <laughs> Yeah, I think our our and it's in house, the park, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think our house that's like a corner lot that I grew up in, Emily, that is still your grandparents' house, was like forty thousand dollars in yeah. nineteen seventy eight. So I, I mean, I'm not saying it would be a good house, but like, you, this is a lot of freaking money. <laughs> anyway, I feel like he could have bought Claudia that mounds bar that she really I know, that wanted. Was my big takeaway from the book is that poor Claudia, Claudia likes coconut. <laughs> I also really loved those two pages, though, because it was both them looking at the minibar and also them hoping that maybe there was a rated R movie on the cable. And then they have this really sweet kind of wistful conversation about like, have you guys ever seen a rated R movie? Yeah, me neither. And then Don says like, well, my brother Jeff saw one and he said it wasn't that big of a deal. And they were like, oh, really? Mm. That would have been me. My mom (laughs) let me watch one when I was Was way too young. It wasn't that big of a deal. Probably, (laughs) honestly. No, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was something that I wasn't actually interested in. She was like, you can watch if you want. And I was like, yeah. okay. I just, so now I probably I, left partway through. I picture your mom, I picture her watching Dennis Quaid movies with like a glass full of ice and with some Pepsi in it. Full of ice. Yeah. Very little Pepsi. Um, but I feel like there was also, so they had, um, Claudia was into the mound to not eat the mound. She did eat the butterscotch sundae. She and then there were also um, mentions of pretzels and Fritos. I feel like this is the first mention of Fritos in the series so far. It had been it had been Doritos. Yeah, I think that's right. And now it's Fritos, which I feel like Fritos are a overlooked chip. You know? Yeah, I had I had a Frito recently for the first time in probably a decade, and I was like, oh yeah, man, they're like those really are good. greasy and corny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like thick, but not in the way of those like, you know, artisanal, really thick tortilla chips that like a fancy Mexican restaurant would have. I don't like those as much. I like my regular tortilla chips really thin like that. What's that place in San Diego that I'm obsessed with? Fred's. Mm -hmm. Um, I like a real thin chip like Fred's, like greasy with some paprika. But a Frito is like a different thing. It's like a corn cake, but not. (laughs) Yeah. What about tallies? <laughs> so this is a really interesting thing in this book. I have some social justice things that set up, but they don't describe each other at all. Mm-hmm. There's no intro. There's no telling you what the Babysitter's Club is. There's no chapter two. Um, and because it's different people's perspectives, they're not, you know, it would have been pretty boring to have every first chapter from every person describing the other people that are on the trip. So they use the word sophisticated a few times to refer to like Alexandra Carmody and other people, but they don't describe each other at all. There are zero yeah. tallies in this book. No trope reinforcement. Um, however, I was curious about pirates in general. Um, mm. It seems like pirates are not, you know, the boys are really obsessed with pirates. They're talking about pirates before they get to Disney World. And then, of course, there's Pirates of the Caribbean. And this is pre pre the movie franchise, right? It's just the, the ride and this idea of pirates. Um, but pirates are like still a thing and pretty problematic, right? Like it's like a sociopolitical problem. And then I think it also includes a lot of racial and cultural stereotypes in them. And it's sort of this romanticization, uh, romanticization of a lot of bad things. So I don't know. I was curious if you thought about that I mean, at all. I think Emily. the inverse is also true that it's like demonized as this thing 
that right. we actually don't we have there, there are different contexts for understanding like why it happens right. and what the target is and that kind of thing so i think yeah. i think the like stereotypes of it work in both the both mm-hmm. direct they pull in both directions both the, mm-hmm. the demonization and the romanticization of it and that it, makes like, sense. it elides a lot of like political context uh, that uh, piracy is a backdrop for and like other other things yeah so I just noticed that um, Claudia lends Dawn her Indian beaded belt for her date with Parker. Um, again, I'm never sure how to code Indian. Like, it, you know, it is a word that's been reclaimed. Certainly, Anna Martin is not Native American, so she's not reclaiming it here. But yeah. it, um, and then, um, you know, we did talk about this just a, a small sidebar. Um, they did a pretty I, I think she did a pretty good job of disability representation in this book. So mm. obviously, Mark Kubaki is a big so- sub story and he's this kid that has this heart condition so he can walk, but he's not supposed to because it's too hard on his heart. And, you know, positive spoiler alert, family has taken him on this trip in case he dies in this very dangerous operation that he's going to have. And then he does not. And he's doing well and he's going to get to ride a bicycle Um, someday, we find out in the epilogue. Um, But I think like, yes, maybe it's a thin line between Stacy and her diabetes and Mark and this heart condition. But I think talking with kids about how the park Mm -hmm. employees treat Mark and what it's like to be in a wheelchair in a Disney park and the accessibility, you know, Disney really led the way in a lot of disability access stuff in the seventies and eighties before Mm -hmm. many, you know, many amusement parks at that time, you were just SOL if you were in a wheelchair. I also Um, thought that Claire and Margot were really cute mm -hmm. representations of like how kids like their curiosity about things isn't necessarily yeah, like stereotyping or problematic, but like right. actually their openness to like asking him questions about what he could and could not do made like really humanized him. And like mm-hmm. their, their relationship was like super sweet and sincere. Yeah. Yeah. I really so now I'm that. crying. Um, <laughs> you didn't even ask me. I was, um, <laughs> I was gonna. <laughs> yeah, I totally crying. agree. So I think that was dealt with really well. And it was also, um, I think who, who was it? So another part of the, someone's just watching, I think it's Mallory. When Mallory's spying in the park, she um, notices a girl who's in leg braces, but is having a great time. Um, And then she also mentions a group of um, adults who are wearing matching t-shirts. And she says, I think they might be retarded. Um, But she's not saying it in a, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time, the, it was called mental retardation. That was the actual classification for people that had low IQ and may need help with some activities of daily living or may not be able to um, understand the world in the same way as somebody with an average IQ. Now we talk about intellectual disability. Um, and so that word, of course, has become to be quite problematic, but she's not using it as a slur. It just was the proper term at that time. So I wrote it down because it's not the proper term anymore, but I thought it was another nice moment of representation. Mm -hmm. She's just saying like, this park is for everybody and there's all different Mm -hmm. kinds of people here. And that's cool, which I think we'll see that openness of the Pikes again very soon when we get to Jesse's secret language Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So I I liked that part, Um, but no, like uh, none of our great trope tallies fascinating stuff guys all right i only had one favorite line in this book that i wrote down because i legitimately lol'd at it and i'll explain why because it's not that funny on its own there's a (laughs) moment where claire is talking about they're like with mark 
at Epcot and they're talking about dinosaurs and Claire calls them dactyls and Margot corrects her and just says pterodactyls and there's like no punctuation or anything. And when I read it, I read it Margot with like an adult, like sarcastic voice being like, it's actually pterodactyls. Like, and it (laughs) cracked me up. I don't, I don't know. That was my, that that was where I laughed so hard. I had to pause. That's amazing. Um, I only wrote down one line and it was when they're having one of their meetings um, and they're talking about what, what to get Watson and Elizabeth as a gift. And everyone's throwing out bad ideas, you know, in Chrissy's opinion. And Marianne suggests getting them like a personalized keychain. And Chrissy says, get real, you babysitters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, none of mine are dialogue, but they're just things that I that I liked that are said in the internal voice of people. So Mary, not Marianne, Mallory says, um, sometimes you have to protect parents and their feelings pretty early in the book. And that's just like a very psychology line to me. And I and I like that. And I like sort of Mallory's metacognition about her role as a kid. Um, I also just really um, I really liked Stacy throwing shade at these random people sitting in the soda fountain. So when Stacy sees uh, Timothy pay for Claudia's Sunday, she looks and um, he's like, I'll pay for her Sunday too. Who was he pointing to? I turned to look. He was pointing at Claudia, or at least I thought he was. An older woman was at a table in front of ours and a girl my age was at a table in the back of ours. But neither of them looked like she deserved a secret admirer. So I just found that really like, dang, Stacy. Damn. Deserved. So, yeah, that's that concept was was uh, quite shocking to me. But I don't think I don't know that any of those are a fantastic great line. I like get real you babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. I think that works. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what should we pizza toast to? Huh. I don't care. <laughs> Can we just pizza toast to Emily's general apathy slash disgust to this book? I mean, I think we got enough of it. I don't need that it needs its own toast. Rude. I, I mean, the things that I really liked in this book, like I like Mr. Staples. I like the cross-generational friendship. I like the disability representation. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Why don't we just pizza toast the spider from the insects? Perfect. <laughs> okay. Pizza toast to spider from the insects. To spider. To spider from the insects. <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. Okay.